you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amusing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Brian, Jody, Jerry, Garrett, Ben, Janet, and John, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store if you feel inclined, so check it out. Our guest today is Christian Behoon. Christian is a PhD candidate in the Integrative Fish Ecology Lab supervised by Dr. Graham Brady. Christian's research aims to gain insight into the bioenergetics of walleye in the Great Lakes to ultimately understand the potential consequences of global warming on fish growth and reproduction. Prior to graduate school, Christian attended the University of Guelph, where he completed his BSc in Marine and Freshwater Biology. Welcome to the podcast, Christian. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. To start off, have you always had an interest in fisheries and fisheries research? Yeah, I think so. I have the sort of classic origin story. My grandpa was a big angler and he would take my cousins and I fishing growing up. So I was introduced to fish and fisheries through that. But there are a lot of things about fisheries that appeal to me, not just the the angling side. And one is just a general love of science and biology. And I think I have my parents to thank for that because both my parents and my sister also have a, a background in biology. So it's just something I was exposed to a lot growing up. But I also really enjoy the the conservation aspect. I think it does give me a, a bit of a sense of purpose knowing that I might be contributing some knowledge to you know the betterment of our environment. Yeah, a, f- a few different things uh, come to mind there. Let's dive into talking about your journey in fisheries research so far. As I mentioned, you completed your undergraduate degree in marine and freshwater biology at the University of Guelph in Guelph, Ontario. It's interesting that you took both marine and freshwater biology. Was there one that you preferred out of the two? So I grew up in Ontario. I've always been a freshwater guy, although I did I did really enjoy the program. And it was, I think, nice to be exposed to lots of different species and inverts. The program at Guelph is very much comparative. So they really introduce you to a lot of different taxa in the program. So I think it gave me a really great understanding of aquatic environments as a whole, but I don't think I ever had any intention of studying marine species. I was very much focused on freshwater lakes. Right. And do you think the experience that you gained during your undergraduate degree and with the knowledge that you learned about freshwater ecosystems, did that contribute to you wanting to continue on and move to graduate school once you finished your degree? I didn't really know what I wanted to do by the time I graduated. I had spent most of my summers working in outdoor education at an outdoors camp. So I did a lot of canoe tripping and stuff like that, which I I really enjoyed. But I didn't have a lot of fisheries experience. And I think I was a bit naive about the fisheries job market when I I graduated. So I, I applied for all kinds of stuff. I knew I wanted to get some experience before even thinking about going into grad school potentially. And I just I took the first job in fisheries that I could get. And that brought me to small hatchery on the south basin of Lake Manitoba. And I really enjoyed that. And I did a whole a whole bunch of different jobs in the years following my undergrad degree. 
Some of them were fisheries related, others were not. I worked in agriculture for a crop science company for a while. That was really interesting. I got a, a taste of agriculture. I worked at Mountain Equipment Co-op, kind of in between jobs. I did some invasive species stuff. In retrospect, I'm, I'm actually really glad I took those years to kind of have those experiences. And I think I learned a lot and, and met some really great people along the way. You mentioned that you worked at a hatchery in Manitoba. Tell us more about that. The name of this hatchery is the Swan Creek Walleye Hatchery. It's a, a provincial provincial hatchery on the south basin of Lake Manitoba. And I think it's rather unique in that the hatchery is seasonal. So it only runs during the walleye spawn. So we show up uh, in early April. We walk across the ice to Hatchery Island, where there's this small facility there. We brush the dust off of everything and set up uh, a big recirculating aquaculture system. And then we go out and set nets and, and collect wild stock for eggs. I think this hatchery has a, a pretty unique history too. It was built in the 1920s by a group of commercial fishermen. The original goal of this hatchery was just to stock Lake Manitoba so that they had fish to catch and provide for their family. So this group of commercial fishermen actually applied for a license to DFO. So at the time in the 1920s, the federal government had jurisdiction over crown resources. So they applied for a federal license, they built the hatchery, and it wasn't until many years later when the province took over jurisdiction of you know, freshwater fisheries that the province bought the hatchery off this group of commercial fishermen. But historically, ever since, the, the hatchery has employed local people, many of whom are, are commercial fishermen. So for example, my boss is a commercial fisherman, uh, and his dad was actually one of the original guys who built that building in 1920. So there's a really strong connection between this hatchery and, and that community, which was interesting to me, but also kind of funny being some kid from Ottawa. Uh, I'm not sure why they, they hired a guy from Ottawa to come out to Manitoba to work this job, but uh, I'm really glad they did. So yeah, we, we collect wild walleye in this big pound net. We strip the eggs in the barge and fertilize them right on the boat. And then we bring them back to the hatchery and 14 to 21 days later, we have a little walleye fry and we don't grow the fish out at all. Um, almost as soon as they're hatched, we start to ship them out. I mean, many go back to the lake in the creek or elsewhere around Lake Manitoba, but other regions also get quite a bit of fry. So somehow I've managed to go back to this hatchery every year for the past six years. So something I really enjoy doing. That sounds wonderful especially because of the relationship that you have made with the individuals working at this hatchery and just being in that area in general. A question I do have, is there any monitoring that happens once the fry are released? Yeah, great question. It does feel weird sometimes releasing all these hundreds of thousands of walleye fry into a water body and, and watching them swim away. Although we, we do try and establish fry balls, but yeah, there, there are ways that we can determine whether the stocking is successful. And, and one of the ways we do that is to use a dye. I forget the name. It's a, it's a blue dye, but essentially you can stain the ear bone of a walleye fry. And then years later, when that fish is an adult and it's harvested commercially, or maybe in some kind of index netting by the province, you can collect the otolith and you can see if the otolith is blue, then it was a hatchery fish. So supposedly, just by word of mouth, I don't know the actual numbers, supposedly a good number of the commercial catch has had those blue blue ear bones. So they've taken that as a sign that yes, 
the hatchery is performing its duty in making lots of walleye. That's fascinating. I didn't know that you were able to stain the ear bones of fish. Currently, you are a PhD student in the Integrative Fish Ecology Lab at Trent University, supervised by Dr. Graham Raby, as I mentioned earlier. Explain to us broadly what your research project is focused on. The big research objective of my dissertation is to refine the bioenergetic model for walleye, and then to use that updated model to look at the effects of climate change and the consequences of sexual size dimorphism. So I guess, you know, first of all, what is bioenergetics? Bioenergetics is a modeling approach that's based on the energetic inputs and outputs uh, of an organism. So in theory, whatever the fish eats in terms of calories or kilojoules, that energy has to go somewhere to growth or some of it is lost to ingestion or excretion. Some of it is spent on respiration and movement and all that. So bioenergetics tries to capture all the energy inputs and outputs. And it's also referred to as the Wisconsin model. So it was developed by a group of researchers at the University of Wisconsin, specifically to model consumption of predator fish in the Great Lakes. And this was in the 1970s, I believe, around the same time that we started stocking millions of Pacific salmon into the Great Lakes. So I think it was a good idea to to develop a tool that could estimate consumption of, of predator fish when we're adding all these predators to the Great Lakes, because otherwise consumption is really timely to to estimate. You have to go out and catch a bunch of fish and look at their stomachs and, and do that repeatedly throughout the year. But if you could replace that with a, a mathematical model that was you know, b- based on the energetic needs of the fish, then that would potentially save you a lot of time. And I think bioenergetics are extra interesting because they have lots of you know other potential, not just consumption. We could look at Climate warming, you know, you could fiddle with the, the temperature component of the model. You could add on um, a parasite. So I've seen studies that have looked at, you know, the energetic costs of a lamprey on a fish. And then for myself, using a bioenergetic model to look at sexual size dimorphism. So as I mentioned, female walleye are larger, and that should come at a cost somewhere. So whether females are acquiring more energy or whether males are, you know, have higher energy expenditure, that difference in growth should be realized somewhere in that, you know, mass balance model. First, we need to refine the model. My chapters are focused on the respiration components. So if you think about all the ways a fish can spend energy, you've got uh, your sort of resting metabolism or your standard metabolic rate, uh, on top of which you have a digestive metabolism. So if you eat a meal, that comes with costs. And then you have your activity metabolism, the, the energy spent moving around. So I have a a chapter on each of those components. Two of them we can measure with respirometry. Standard metabolic rate and digestive metabolism are involuntary responses. So we we can put the fish in a chamber and measure oxygen consumption as a proxy for metabolic rate. And we'll do that across a range of temperatures and try and quantify that relationship with temperature and body mass and sex so that we can put it in the model. But activity metabolism is a little more challenging because it's a It's a voluntary response. We need to measure activity in a wild fish doing wild things. So to accomplish that, we're using accelerometer bearing acoustic tags. Acoustic tags are little tracking devices. You can put them in in a fish. They put out a, a little noise and there's all kinds of hydrophones around the Great Lakes that can pick up these, these noises. So we can, we can track fish using acoustic telemetry. But on top of that, these tags essentially have 
I think the easiest way to describe it is like a step counter. Like, you know, the step counters you used to get in a cereal box. You know, imagine if you if you put that on a fish and then you counted all the steps and then we could turn that into some kind of energy equivalent and we can get an idea of how much energy the fish is actually spending on movement. So we'll, we'll take all that metabolic data from those three chapters, we'll put it into a bioenergetic model, and then we'll, we'll see what we get running climate simulations and looking at sexual size dimorphism. You mentioned that for two of your chapters, you're using respirometry to understand standard metabolic rates and digestive metabolism. What is respirometry for those who don't know? Respirometry is the practice of using oxygen sensing technologies, so uh, oxygen probes, to measure the rate of oxygen oxygen consumption of a fish. And we use that as a, a proxy for metabolic rate. So if you think back to grade 12 bio, if you remember your, your cellular respiration equation, you convert sugars to energy in a fixed ratio with oxygen. So for every gram of oxygen that you consume, it should be the exact same amount of energy that your body is producing. So we use oxygen consumption as a proxy for energy output or metabolic rate. And there's a few different types of respirometry. I do static respirometry. So the fish is in a chamber. It's not swimming, but there are also chambers that have the fish swimming around a swim tunnel respirometer. Some of my lab mates have done some swim tunnel work, but yeah, essentially you can put the fish in these respirometry chambers, measure oxygen consumption, and then we can look at the metabolic rate of the fish. And if we want to look at the digestive metabolism, we simply have to feed the fish and then put it in the chamber and we can observe that postprandial rise in metabolism. So when a fish eats a meal, all sorts of things happen. You excrete enzymes, there's peristalsis in the gut, you know, digesting meal comes at a cost. So your metabolic rate actually comes up and then it gradually declines. And we can, you know, quantify that and take the area under the curve and, you know, do all kinds of calculations on that. So we've done a whole bunch of different respirometry experiments. Some of them are, are in review right now, which I'm very excited about. But I think the most notable finding so far, and I mean, take it with a, a grain of salt, this has not been reviewed. But I think the most interesting finding we found so far, we found that body mass had a pretty drastic effect on maximum metabolic rate. So at the end of these respirometry experiments, we were taking the fish out, chasing it around to elicit you know, an exhaustive exercise and then putting it back in the chamber. And we found that large individuals had, you know, significantly lower maximum metabolic rates per kilogram than small fish. So we think that large individuals or large walleye are probably the most constrained in their ability to upregulate their, their metabolism. And then on top of that, we found that male walleye had 15% higher maximum metabolic rate. So there may be some adaptive significance of that related to the reproductive behavior. So male walleye, when they reproduce, they're often kind of scrambling around trying to get to multiple females. It could be that males simply need that extra bit of maximum metabolic rate to perform op optimally. But I think it also kind of hints at which individuals are maybe the most vulnerable. Large females have the lowest capacity to do exhaustive exercise. And, and maybe that's something we should consider as anglers too. If we're catching large walleye, maybe we need to take that extra bit of care to uh, ensure we release it safely. Another interesting finding from those digestive studies, we found that 
walleye digestion was much more efficient than we previously thought, or at least we, we've been previously modeling. So no one has studied digestive metabolism in adult walleye. So most models have kind of relied on just kind of an average value for, for what it takes to digest a meal. And that average value is around 17%. So if you if a fish eats 100 calories, it might spend 17 calories digesting the meal. So 17% of the meal goes towards that digestive metabolism. But we found that walleye digestion was much more efficient at around 6%. So I'm not sure what the adaptive significance of that is, but I thought it was interesting and also very applicable. Like we can put that into the updated bioenergetic model and that, that might actually make a big, big difference. Interesting. The walleye that you used in both of these respirometry studies, where did you collect them from and how many individuals did you include in both these studies? Great question. So I'm sitting on three data sets right now. One was collected by a former student, Megan Murphy, and she used uh, hatchery fish. So I think the original stock came from Lake Ontario, but these fish were raised in, in hatchery conditions at White Lake Provincial Hatchery, which is maybe an hour and a half from, from Trent University. So she did a whole bunch of respirometry on those hatchery fish. The digestive study that we did, we used uh, mostly fish from Rice Lake, which is maybe 30 minutes south of, of Peterborough. Maybe I would say a medium-sized lake. And then we have a data set from Lake Erie. The goal is to collect data for each of the Great Lake populations that we're hoping to study, which are Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, Lake Michigan, and Lake Winnipeg. So all lakes that boast mega populations of, of walleye. So we have a bit more respirometry planned in the spring to hopefully do some Lake Ontario fish and also some Lake Winnipeg fish. Before we get into talking about what your future fieldwork plans are, let's talk about your third chapter or third topic that's focused on activity metabolism. Tell us about that. Like I mentioned, we're using accelerometer bearing acoustic tags. So my project is funded by the Great Lakes Fishery Commission and is supported by GLADOS, which is the Great Lakes Acoustic Telemetry Observation System, which is this very collaborative effort to maintain an acoustic receiver array throughout the Great Lakes. So if you look at Lake Erie or Lake Ontario, there's a whole grid of acoustic receivers that are all listening for all these different fish that we, we've tagged over the years. So I think two years ago now, my lab, and then also with the help of many collaborators, I, I did not tag any of these <laughs> fish for the record. So I'm very fortunate to have had lots of help. But my lab and our collaborators tagged 60 walleye in Lake Erie, 60 walleye in Lake Ontario, 60 walleye in Green Bay, Lake Michigan, and 60 walleye in Lake Winnipeg. And so all those fish have been swimming around for over a year now. So we're just kind of starting to look at that data. We want to have a full year's worth of data so that we can look at activity over the course of the year. And those tags need to be calibrated first. So one of my lab mates, Erin Ritchie, her whole thesis was essentially calibrating these accelerometer tags. So she was using that swim tunnel respirometer, swimming fish with the tag inside it, and then building the relationship between the tag output and temperature and the size of the fish so that when we tag those fish and release them in the wild, we understand what the tag output is giving us um, because it gives us a sort of summary value. I mean, I described it as a step counter, but it's a little more 
complicated than that. So it it summarizes all of the accelerations in the tail in the last five minutes, I believe, and then it spits out a, a summary value if the detection is heard by a receiver. So there there will be lots of holes in the data, but hopefully we can use that to build a model throughout the course of the year to look at activity. That's awesome that you have such a great sample size and you were able to go into the study with that number of fish tag. You mentioned that the accelerometer tags summarize all of the accelerations in an individual's tail. What does that mean? These tags actually have to get sutured into the body wall. So they can't just be free floating in the body cavity. So they they take an extra couple sutures. Uh, Again, I didn't tag any of the fish. So thank you uh, if any of of those people are are listening, because it is quite a bit more work than I think doing a normal acoustic tag and just slipping it into the body cavity. Because you want the tag to be aligned with the axis of the fish. So if you think about these tags as maybe a bit bigger than a AA battery, we want them to be oriented from head to tail um, so that the acceleration values we get are, you know, an accurate depiction of that tail beat frequency. So every time the fish beats its tail, that accelerometer picks up the movement and it summarizes five minutes worth of movements. And then when it makes that ping for the acoustic receiver to pick up, it transmit transmits that summary value. So it's it's quite a bit to, to decipher. And then of course, on top of that, you have to consider temperature because, you know, metabolism is determined by temperature. So some of these tags have temperature sensors in them, others don't, and we'll have to rely on temperature data from the acoustic receiver. Ultimately, you're planning to use the findings of your research to understand fish growth in response to climate change. What are the various components of growth that you're hoping to examine, and how do you envision this being achieved? I think in the, the current model for, for bioenergetics, growth is a, a single component, so we don't actually split growth into you know, somatic growth and reproductive output. I think those those two are are one variable. But there there are a number of studies that have shown that fish globally are are shrinking, possibly as a result of climate change. So we want to run climate simulations and we know that large females in particularly are especially important for populations. Most females exhibit reproductive hyperallometry. So as females get bigger, they produce exponentially more eggs. So it, it kind of stands that large females are, you know, the most important members of the population. And as I mentioned earlier, they might also be the most vulnerable based on what we we saw with you know, maximum metabolic rate and the effect of, of sex and body size. So if we do find that warming climate leads to a reduction in growth, we can expand those findings to a population level and look at how that might change you know, the total biomass of the population. I don't think we can speak on the actual reproductive output of of a given fish, but we can maybe extrapolate to population levels and make inferences about how, you know, the population would be affected by a reduction in growth. So with the information that you've collected and the knowledge that fish populations are shrinking globally, should we be concerned about walleye populations in the Great Lakes currently? I think Lake Erie is at a record high for for walleye right now. So I think it depends where you look. So Lake Erie is doing really well. I know the South Basin of Lake Manitoba, they're talking about shutting down the commercial fishery. 
but it it really just depends on the system and a part of it relates to harvest so walleye are a really popular sport fish and you know there's a lot of commercial fisheries for walleye and subsistence fisheries for walleye so um in some places i think walleye are doing really well in other places maybe not so much and i think anecdotally if you ask a lot of anglers in in northern ontario they would tell you that walleye populations are probably not what they used to be and we do think that with climate warming there might be increased habitat overlap with smallmouth bass or largemouth bass walleye are a cool water fish so they're kind of you know in between the warm water centrarchids and the the cool water salmonids so there is potential for for more habitat overlap and more competition between other species uh with warming waters but um yeah, I guess there's there's not really one answer to that. So yes and no. Outside of school, you are also working for a tournament angling company. What does that involve? And explain all of that to us. For the last year, I've been working for a company called MyCatch. Uh, I'm on the events team. A friend of mine put me in touch with the, the job advertisement. And so basically, this company is a platform for for anglers. So you don't have to be doing a tournament. You could simply uh, use it to track your, you know, your fishing excursions. You can upload your catches and kind of keep it as a personal log using their application. And then we also host events. And some of them are, you know, classic tournament style events. It's all catch photo release. So you have to take a picture of the fish through the application. And then someone like myself, or a member of our team would verify the entry. So we would make sure it's the species that you said it is, and it's the right length. And we have all kinds of rules in place to you know, make sure that those measurements are accurate. So yeah, some of them are, are classic tournaments, you know, longest fish, largest fish, uh, whichever. Um, but we also do a lot of citizen science or kind of management oriented events. So for example, uh, we, had, we have an ongoing event called Blotchy Bass Bonanza. <laughs> which uh, we're basically looking for instances of, of blotchy bass syndrome, which is this fish virus. It looks like these dark blotchy pa- patches. We pass all that data along to uh, a PhD candidate. His name's Clayton, and he's you know using that data for his dissertation. And you can imagine if you had like lots of users, you would accumulate a ton of data on this app. So there's a quite a few different use uses uh, for the data. Although I will say that the the company motto is secret spots stay secret. So we don't ever share location. If you if you catch a trophy fish, no one is ever going to know where it is. But we've had events which simply act as a creel survey, so people can go out and they upload their catches, and then we can get an idea of what's in the lake. We had an event recently which was an angler incentive event. So the province of British Columbia wanted to incentivize anglers to go out and catch bull trout and rainbow trout in Kootenay Lake. Kokanee population had collapsed in, in that lake and was in some kind of depressed, stable state that they couldn't get out of because of all this predation by rainbow trout and bull trout. So we we used this event to incentivize anglers. You know, there's prizes if you, if you catch all these fish. That's a, kind of a, a unique way to try and manage or, or alleviate pressure on, on the fishery. So if you ask my my boss or the, the founders, his name's Sean Simmons, he would tell you that his vision for the company is to be a global leader in citizen science. So I think we're 
the company is really moving beyond fishing tournaments and people are starting to realize the value of all this this you know citizen data that's coming out of the uh the app so my role is very small i just look at catches and i do a bit of customer service but i think it's i've, I've really enjoyed being a part of it well christian now that the tough part of the interview is over we are down to the final five questions this is a group of five questions that I ask each of the guests that come on the show. We always start simple with, what is your favorite fish? It's tempting to say a walleye, but I actually really like sauger. Working at the hatchery, we would often get one single sauger that would come into the nets, and I would always get really excited. And I haven't seen a lot of sauger otherwise, so they're kind of this like mysterious alternate version of a walleye. So I think if I did future research, I would love to maybe study Sagar. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? You know what? I had a really good time with my lab mates in Algonquin Park, uh, helping out with some some other research. Uh, a friend of yours as well, Erin Stewart, she was doing fly-ins to Algonquin Park and I got to tag along uh, on one of the fly-ins. And that was my first time being up in a, a float plane. And it was super cool. And I, you know, just really enjoyed the time with my lab mates as well. So what is your dream job or location? Ooh, that's a, that's a toughie. Cause I'm, I'm really enjoying research right now. And I think I would like to stay in research. I mean, we'll, we'll see how the PhD goes, but I'm not sure if I want to stay in academia. Like, I think it would be nice to be a research scientist for DFO or, or MNR. I just really don't like the thought of having to apply for grants over and over and over again, again, to sustain my, my research. But I would like to stay in research at the end of the day, I think. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? You know, if I could add one chapter to my dissertation, I would go overseas and I would look at Xander. Xander are sort of a European walleye. They're same genus. Uh, they look just like a walleye but they don't exhibit sexual size dimorphism. So I think if you wanted to, you know, really study sexual size dimorphism, Xander would be like the perfect control to compare against walleye. So I would love to go overseas. I don't think I can convince my supervisor to cough up the, the money to send me to, to Europe <laughs> to do this, but I would love to go and maybe repeat some of the experiments that we're doing with walleye on Xander. I think they don't exhibit SSD because the males are nest guarding. So there's maybe some selection for the males to be larger and therefore there's no, no difference in uh, size between the sexes. So I think they would just make for a really neat comparison to walleye. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I think if we all just took on a sense of stewardship for our local environment, the world would probably be a better place. I think studying bioenergetics has changed the way I think about fish energy is a finite resource. Fish are constrained by aerobic minima and, and maxima. So I would just encourage people to think about bioenergetics, I suppose, when they're fishing and, you know, try not to play the fish too much. Try not to keep it out of water too long. Keep the fish wet. Uh, and also to protect large females. So if you, you know, if you do catch a large female, try and take that extra bit of care and maybe practice selective harvest and uh, keep those large females in the population as well. Christian, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work. If people want to find out more or get a hold of you, how would they do that? 
I'm sure you can find my contact info on the Integrative Fish Ecology Lab website. But yeah, feel free to give me an email if uh, I piqued your curiosity about anything. If you would like to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Caitlin Cunningham. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, large females are the most important and possibly the most vulnerable. Thank you.